This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Philip Picardi. During his career as an award-winning journalist and editor, Philip has made an indelible mark on our culture. After years of working to rebrand Teen Vogue and launching a community-driven platform for LGBTQ plus youth, Philip decided to do something unexpected. He left the world of magazines to launch a podcast about religion, and he decided to go back to school. We recorded this conversation not long after Philip's graduation from Harvard Divinity School, where he received his master's degree in religion and public life. In this episode, we talk about why he decided to pivot away from media and re-examine his relationship to Christianity. We talk about his journey back to religion, the duality between his identity and his faith, and what galvanizes his beliefs today. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Phil Picardi. Hi. Hi, Gwyneth. How are you? I'm good. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy, happy Pride. Where are you priding these days? I am currently at my home in Manhattan Beach, California, but I leave tomorrow for the White House and I'll be celebrating Pride at the White House. And then I head to New York for a few Pride related things there for about a week or so. Tell me about the White House one. How did that come about? You know, I truly don't know, but obviously it's an honor to be invited by the president's team to come to the White House. And it's a particularly, as you know, troubling year for anti-LGBT legislation and the anti-LGBT movement writ large. And so it is an honor to celebrate Pride. And I, I hope that it's also a communication of the importance of celebrating the community in the face of truly, truly a, a tricky 
and terrible past few years for, for us. So I'm honored to be there. I hope we can communicate the urgency of the moment. And I hope that we can also make time for, for joy in the midst of all that. Will you talk to me a little bit about your path to becoming the activist that you are today? Like you had such an interesting childhood in Boston, growing up in a Catholic family and knowing you were gay at such a young age. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how your childhood specifically set you up to, you know, be somebody that was going to change the world in this regard. Well, wow. Thank you. I, I, you know, it's so funny. I'm always wary of, of adopting the term activist for myself. And we'll talk about that as we get into like my work in the media and, and stuff. But I would say that my journey of my queerness and my journey of religion are one in the same. Before I was born, my dad had a religious reawakening. So he was always a fairly religious person. Again, as you mentioned, my dad is the child of Catholic Italian immigrants. So is my mother who all came to Boston. And basically I was the fourth out of five children. And right before I was born, my dad decided he wanted to actually leave his job. He had a pretty successful job in real estate and he was making a lot of money or, you know, enough, more than enough money, let's say. And he decided he wanted to become a deacon and leave all of his career behind him. He no longer found it fulfilling to his soul. And on this religious journey, he was also helping to fund the local Franciscan Center, which was located in our neighborhood. And he took a trip to a Marian apparition site called Medjugorje. A Marian apparition site is where people believe they have seen an image or a vision of the Virgin Mary. And the Catholic Church actually has a whole department in the Vatican that investigates Marian apparitions. So my dad went with these monks. He took a vow of silence. And while he was there, he had a dream that the child that was in his wife, my mom's womb, was not going to be born a boy. And so I, I was so confused hearing the story as an adult. I said, well, what was the vision? And he said, I had a vision of your mother pregnant. And then I had a vision of bright pink rosary beads. And I knew, I called your mother when I woke up from the dream. I knew you were going to be born a girl. I thought that's what the vision meant. And I wasn't exactly what my dad was expecting on many levels. Well, first of all, I am a man, Maury. And second of all, I was as like as long as anyone can remember, I was as gay as the day is long. I mean, I was walking around the house insisting that I was the pink Power Ranger. I did not smile for three years of class photos at my Catholic school because I wanted to be like Victoria Beckham because Posh Spice never smiled. And I got in trouble in Catholic school for bring. I could not part with Britney Spears' debut album. So I had to bring it in my backpack with me as like a totem, basically. And then I got in trouble for bringing contraband onto school property. So like literally no one saw me coming. And it was just one of those things, when, especially when we're talking about kids and identity. It's like nobody knows who they are better than a child, actually. Like I was happier and more sure of myself as a young person than I am as a grown adult man, you know? And basically what, what started to happen after I started to grow older, like past the first grade, is that I started receiving messages both from my school and from my surroundings, my social groups, but most importantly from my, my father and my older brothers that there was something wrong with me. And 
at first, you know, I internalized a lot of that as trying to potentially change in order to suit what they wanted from me. But there was something about me as a kid that really just turned all of that into this sort of righteous rage that wanted to throw it in everyone's face instead of conforming. And it was that. It was it was that gift. You know, my friend Raquel calls queerness a gift of vision because we can see the world both for what it is, but we see humanity in people and a hidden humanity that people are denying themselves. I have had that gift since I was about eight years old. And I wanted to make sure that whatever I did in my life, I was making sure that people didn't have to feel stifled or alone or on the brink of suicide or unseen in the ways that I was made to feel as a young person. And so I ended up finding that avenue most, I think, potently through being a journalist and speaking truth to power and journalism in unexpected ways. And how much do you think that, you know, specifically growing up Catholic and kind of under the banner of sin and the the fact that endemically who you were was going to presumably send you to hell? Because a, a lot of queer youth in America obviously have this, you know, the, the norms of society are not accepting of them. It's difficult for heteronormative parents to accept the kids, but was the Catholic piece an extra layer to that? Oh God. I mean, not only was my dad really into like the Marian, he was into all of the superstitions of Catholicism. So he really wasn't just Catholic in the terms of like how we encounter Catholicism. He was deeply embedded in the mythology and the magic of Catholicism in a way that I've now been able to find liberating. But mm-hmm. as a child, you know, when my little brother and I started picking up swear words, he like sat us down and showed us a clip of The Exorcist and was like, this is what happens when you betray God. <laughs> I mean, it was like, some kids had the boogeyman, I had Satan. So like, that was very alarming. So when I learned that, you know, being gay was a sin, I was not horrified about what my dad would say. Really, what my parents said was almost irrelevant at that point because what mattered to me was that I was being true to myself. But if I was going to spend eternity in hell, that was a more complicated bargain for me. I cared more about what God thought about me than my parents or my peers. And I made the decision when I was 14. I'll never forget it. I came out to my parents in the middle of the night. It was two in the morning. I had just been watching the reboot of Queer as Folk on Showtime, which is so funny because they just rebooted it, which just goes to show you that I'm getting old. And I watched this episode where Justin, who's like the young character in the show, comes out. And I turned off the television. I walked upstairs to my bedroom. I turned off the lights and I prayed. And I said goodbye to God. Because I was like, you no longer want to hear from me, but you did this to me. I can't change myself. So you did this to me. And now I have to face the consequences of it here on this earth. And you know what? I'm not willing to carry this like a cross. Mm -hmm. So if that's what your other son did, you go talk to him about that. But like, I'll deal with eternity when I get there right now. I'm going to lead with all I know how to do, which is like to lead with love. And that's something I felt like my relationship to faith had taught me. And so I basically said goodbye and I said my final prayer and I walked into my parents' room and I came out of the closet and, and that was it. So for, for me, coming out was this thing where 
I walked away from God, from religion, and family all in one kind of fell swoop. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I'm interested in the logic there because you're only 14 and you believe so much in God that it's kind of like a binary structure. You're like, there's a God or there's not a God. And I'm not going to contemplate that there's not a God because I know there's a God, right? I'm a 14 year old boy and I feel in my bones that there's a God. So at, at what point did you start to align more, I guess, with the teachings of Jesus, which are about love? And kind of away from this, you know, paternal God figure, or did you ever? Not until I was 27. So 13 years later, I was asked to speak at International Muslim Women's Day at Twitter headquarters. I was the only only non-Muslim in the room. And I believe I was maybe one of three men in the room, but regardless backstage and you know, where the speakers were, there was no, I was the only man there. So I'm, I'm here in community with a bunch of basically Muslim feminist activists. And I felt a little out of place to be honest, but I was invited there because at Teen Vogue, we had done a lot in response to Donald Trump's proclamation that there should be a Muslim ban in America And we wanted to also fight against the notion that Islamic extremism was more concerning than white nationalist extremism. And so in the wake of the Pulse shooting, one of the first things that I did was I I went on Facebook Live with a young Muslim woman activist to talk about how the queer community should not resort to Islamophobia in the wake of those shootings and how we find peace in the wake of those shootings. So I was being, you know, asked to speak at this event to talk about representing Islam in the media. And and it was a really interesting conversation. But before it started, the activist Linda Sarsour, she's one of the co-founders of the Women's March, kind of cornered me in the green room. And she kind of was like, what are you doing here? Like, what's your what's your religious story? And I said, oh, well, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, but I'm gay. So you know how that goes. And she kind of just like shook her head in like a very disapproving kind of way. <laughs> And then she said, isn't it a shame that a person like you, who is so oriented towards justice and standing up for people, could be turned away from a religion that was founded by a brown Palestinian Jewish man who did nothing but seek to defy empire in his life and in his teachings? And I said, Linda, that is so nice. Thank you so much. 
but who the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I literally like left and I like texted my fiance and I was like, did you know Jesus wasn't white? And he was like, yeah, I'm black. I, yeah, I knew Jesus wasn't white. And I was like, how did I go to Catholic school my whole life? And this never came up or that Jesus was like anti-establishment. Like he was anti-empire. I mean, he was a political rebel. That's not a matter of interpretation, right? That is actually a matter of historical fact. And so I was shook by this revelation. And I realized (laughs) that when I was that little kid, I went and said goodbye to God because of what a bunch of misguided, small-minded old men told me about God. I let them take God away from me. And that's when that like indignance of my childhood came back. Like that wounded kid in me came back and started screaming inside of me. And three months later, I quit my job. I was the editor in chief of Out Magazine. I walked away from a big severance package because I didn't want to be bound by an NDA from a company that was owned by a a straight white guy that was donating to anti-gay politicians at the time. And I said, I, I need to not just tell my story, but I now need to re-understand my whole story through finding the truth. And I ended up at Divinity School a couple of years later. And you you spoke about that transition of, you know, the anger of from God being wielded against you, against your very person, your core, your heart, your desires, turning into you really kind of being galvanized to find God for yourself, your own version of God. And so was that what precipitated you wanting to go to Harvard Divinity School? I know all of your friends were like, why are you going to Harvard Divinity School? What is that? Why? Yeah, actually, people were worried that I was somehow like going to come out like a priest and, you know, turn my back on the things that I had previously stood up for or whatever. So it was really funny to watch people think that I was going through an identity crisis. I guess it was an identity crisis in a way because it's like, yeah, when you realize that the history that you had been taught as fact by adults that you trusted as a child is actually only one side of a story or an incomplete side of the story or historically inaccurate, it does cause a crisis of meaning in your life. And we've seen those crises of meaning play out when more marginalized people are coming onto a national or international stage and are saying, this is the truth of our history. This is what we have to reckon with. And people don't know how to respond. And so their instinct is defensiveness. You know, my instinct was I, I want to burn it all down and I want to figure out where my soul is guiding me. And I promised myself I would not emerge a Christian still. I promised myself that I would go to Harvard, study world religions, and I would find a new faith to align myself with. And of course, I left Harvard more convinced that I'm a Christian than I ever have been since I was a kid. So some things really do just come full circle. And what was the data that you collected that you used to convince yourself you're more of a Christian than ever? So there's a couple of complicated things that we have to contend with about religion. I went into Harvard, for instance, and on my first day of classes, I I said in my seminar, there were only 11 people in our seminar, all of us were not scholars or academics. We all came from different areas of the professional world. Like I'm in class with Maggie Rogers, who's a pop star, and then I'm in class with a witch who's studying the occult and the tarot at Harvard, right? 
So really wow. interesting group of people. And I said, it's time that we bring the true Christianity to the public square and not just let the perverse version of Christianity be on full display. And my professor said, I understand what you mean, but to assert that you know what true Christianity is, is to basically be making a large theological assertion that denies the complexities of religion. Religion is neither violent nor peaceful. Religion is often what people in power apply meaning to it. And we have to wrestle with the full complexities of these sacred texts and their capacities for violence as well as peace if we are ever going to get anywhere in making progress towards how religion is understood and how religion ultimately is practiced. And to spend the year grappling with that simple fact that religion is neither good nor bad and that I, I, I don't know God, I can't say that evangelical Christians are wrong. But what I can say is I believe that my version of Christianity is right. And I'm willing to bet my life on it. I'm willing to go all the way to the end of the world for it. You know, that's still powerful, but it just helps us align ourselves more specifically with what we're trying to accomplish with, with redefining religion. And it also helps us identify what, what the problems are, what the enemy is, you know? And so those are, those are complicated things to still be grappling with even after I've graduated for sure. Well, I understand her point, meaning, yes, like any system that's evolved over thousands of years, there's going to be lots of different historical accountings of it. There's going to be lots of points of views. But I think what I find interesting about Christianity specifically is that it seems that it has been kind of co-opted by people who want to keep kind of this patriarchal structure in place. And that you probably could say on some level that the truest teachings of Christianity come from Jesus himself, right? Because he's the acorn of the whole philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know that much about religion in the Bible. You know, I didn't go to Harvard Divinity School, let's put it that way. But I am familiar with the teachings of Jesus as I have come to understand them and to read them. And they are very far away from a judgmental, they are some of the most deeply spiritual, magnanimous, unjudgmental ways of, of thinking that I've ever come across. And I was just wondering, so how far away is this rhetoric? And I'm not, I'm not criticizing it either, because who knows, right? Who knows mm-hmm. ultimately, like when we die, what happens? But from your understanding, like how far are these rhetorics away from what Jesus actually said. And did you spend time reading like the quotes that were actually attributed to Jesus and trying to understand your own interpretation and philosophy about what Christianity was based on his words? You know, the truth is that it's really anyone's guess. Because he doesn't say that much in the Bible, right? I mean, it's... Well, the Bible was written after he died. Right. And much of the New Testament is believed to have been written even centuries after his passing or his historical date of death. And so the entire New Testament, therefore, is up for debate. Right. And that's the tricky thing about the Bible. You could say on one hand, listen, look at it this way. The Bible was beloved by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and quoted by him often. And the Bible is often 
quoted and referenced by someone like the Falwells, right? And so neither of those people are misquoting the Bible. They are reading scripture. They just have different interpretations of what scripture says and therefore different means to an end. So it is true, you know, we can say historically speaking, we know this, this, and this about Jesus and Jesus's story or Jesus's arc. You know, some of that in terms of what Christianity became in the wake of his death, which which is that Christianity did become aligned with empire, with conquest, with colonization. The Catholic Church was involved and in, in, enmeshed in the transatlantic slave trade, the forced cultural genocide of indigenous peoples in America, right? And then, of course... Christianity was a fundamental tenet of the civil rights movement of of certain parts of anti-apartheid, right? So in this really weird way, we can spend time splitting hairs about what Jesus did or, or didn't say. But to me, I found those approaches tend to force us into apologetics where we're doing a tit for tat with biblical scholars rather than trying to find what the actual North Star and the meaning of Christianity is. And if we acknowledge that Christianity has these complex, different kinds of meanings, you know, my worry is that it is only the singular white supremacist definition of Christianity that is getting mainstream media attention or cultural attention. And so it's our duty as people who are in the public square and also, you know, the duty of the listeners of this podcast, for example, to look at the stories of the evangelical right and say, what Christians are missing here? Mm. You know, I did a lot of scholarship on the AIDS crisis before I got to Harvard. I, I assembled an oral history of how AIDS impacted the fashion industry, for example. And I was hellbent on exposing the ills of the Archdiocese of New York in, mm-hmm. in the AIDS crisis. I, I know this is stuff that is probably actually deeply personal to you in some ways, for sure. And it was funny because when I was talking to people like Michael Kors or the people who founded God's Love We Deliver, I actually found out that there were people in the clergy, there were nuns who were actually helping gay men pass and find spiritual salvation before they're passing, not in a way that was like, repent, but in a way that was like, God loves you and and you can go to God and it's going to be okay. And who would call their parents, the parents of these gay men who were dying of AIDS, coming out for these gay men who were not able to come out to their parents themselves and then bringing their parents to the hospitals to meet with them before their son died, you know? And so to say that there's one Christianity or Christianity teaches this about homosexuality is it's to deny the work of the people. And some Christians believe that the church is the institution and some Christians believe that the church is the people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I choose to align myself with the latter. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it really does make you ponder how as a society we have come to be so intractable around these ideas of right and wrong. And a a lot of which stems from religion. We seem to be living in this time where the binary is really being considered and deconstructed. And we're all being asked to contemplate that there's a spectrum or a complexity to things. And this is just another one of those examples, right? Yes, we have to resist black and white definitions yes. of things. Yes, we in do. in all shapes and forms, right? A lot of what you're the work that you're doing is resisting the hegemony of western medicine, right? And so resisting the binary in all ways shapes and forms is so crucial and it is ultimately a huge path towards our collective liberation, I think. Mhm. Yeah. 
when did we start to, you know, co-opt religion for our own gains? Like when, when did this happen? Oh, that's a really big question. You know, you could say that it's always been co-opted for someone's gain, right? (laughs) I think maybe what you're getting to is like the kind of new age spirituality that reinforces an idea of like, I must surround myself with positive energy. I have to protect my aura. I have to protect my feelings, you know, and a lot of new age stuff can feel like it orients us towards the self. Now, look, I think this is complicated. I'm not making a blanket statement about all new age spiritualities or practices, right? One thing I would say is that the spirituality of the self is meant to enhance our sense of interconnectedness to one another. And a lot of new age spirituality, rightly so, points us to our connectedness to the earth, right? And so if if you're engaging in a spiritual practice that is only insular and isolated, Sometimes solitary practice can make you think you're the center of the universe, Mm. right? And sometimes that's why it can feel so radically different from institutional religions, which, Mm. which discourage us from that line of thinking. It is not to say, like, when you are focusing on a spiritual practice for the self, it is not to point you in a direction of you thinking you're more divine than someone else or you're more enlightened than someone else. It's supposed to be showing you your divinity and how your divinity is dependent upon the divinity of those around you, right? Mm. So if your spirituality isn't isn't pushing you into a sense of being that wants you to make the world a better and healthier place, then I may spend some time reevaluating how to revise my practice in order to put those tenets first and foremost. Right. Whether it's new age spirituality or whether it's old school, you know, Judaism or whatever the case may be, right? It's funny. I was sort of contemplating this, right? Because there is something that happens when you are close to yourself, then you feel close to God or whatever that is, right? You feel close to that divinity. You feel close to that feeling of possibility. And, and then something works for you, right? You're like, wow, I have clarity on something or I'm more loving. And so then you're like, well, wait, everybody should think like this and feel like this too. Right. So it's like almost the first building block that causes the harmful part of ideology, but it's coming from this place of, wow, I've experienced something amazing and everybody else should do it my way. Exactly. Like you hit the nail on the head. We have to resist, I think, becoming evangelists in a way. Our way is not the best way. If you have found your path and you feel like you're ascending on your path, that's wonderful. Everyone's path is going to look totally different. And by the way, the path that works for people who are in America and who live in California, like you and me, Gwyneth, is going to look potentially radically different from someone who is growing up in a different country and a different culture with a different set of values. And even if like their values are different than ours, it doesn't mean their spirituality is invalid. You know what I mean? We have to respect that too. Trust me, as a gay person, that's been hard to grapple with, right? The idea that we, in order to respect someone's dignity, I have to respect that people are at different places with understanding queerness or queerness as a set of values in the public square, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's hard work. But my relationship to my faith and to my God has encouraged me to to know that if I'm extending dignity and grace and respect to someone, 
I, I can hope to respect that back because that's what I'm putting out there. And so anyways, I hope that we can all come to a better and more collective understanding of that. One of the things that I found so endearing when I was reading some of your work was your description of your grandmother when you went home to see her when she was purportedly dying, but then ended up not dying because she was so strong. <laughs> but you describe this warm, amazing, loving, judgment, unjudgmental to the reader, Italian grandmother yep. who adored you. Yep. And the way that you articulate her Catholicism was filled with so much romance and that her, you know, superstitions and her praying to St. Anthony to find something lost and that there was something very magical to you about her, her Catholicism, because it sort of jumped off the page at me. And I thought, Oh, I, I wish I was Catholic in this way, you know, (laughs) in this beautiful old world way where she had obviously assigned so much order and comfort to her world because of it, but it didn't seem, you know, punitive in any way, the way that she was. So, so what was that experience of Catholicism for you? Yeah. I didn't realize until I got to school that I was existing between polarities of Catholicism between my grandmother and my father. Mm -hmm. Right. So my father is, is fairly representative of, the church itself, like the men of the Vatican, you know, and he really holds those beliefs sacrosanct, right? And my grandmother was a peasant who grew up in the like the far reaching villages of Abruzzo, Italy, like on top of it. We, we went there and we were like, I thought that the cars were going to shift backwards down the mountain. Like we, it was <laughs> to get to where she lived. It was such a trek. But she had this sense of magical thinking around Catholicism that I think is is really prevalent still in, in Italian traditions. And it's certainly prevalent in the Catholic mystic tradition. And a lot of the most famous Catholic yeah. mystics were women. And a lot of those women were believed to have, even though they were denied positions of leadership and authority in the church, especially during their lives, where they were often accused of heresy before they were canonized for political gain by the Catholic church after their deaths, those women were believed to be able to have closer relationships to God than men on the basis of gender, which is not problematic in and of itself, which I'm not going to get into, but just to hold (laughs) that is true for a second. Okay. And my grandmother's belief in magic and and the magic of prayer was so potent because she Mm. just kind of believed that if she knew that God was looking out for her, that she could trust whatever happened with her life was meant to be and Mm -hmm. that she was on the right track if she was good to people and good to those that she loved. And to me, that's a really pure expression of faith. And I remember because I rushed home on the Amtrak the day that she was supposed to have passed. And my Mm -hmm. father had called a priest to basically issue the last rites, which is a ceremony priests often perform over someone who's dying. And basically after he blessed her, my grandmother like sat completely straight up. The cancer had spread to her bones at this point. And we ordered her lobster and she cracked a lobster open by herself (laughs) and ate it down to the bone. And that was such a beautiful, a beautiful thing to witness. Yeah. I love how you talk about the the magic of her Catholicism. I don't know, for somebody like me that grew up kind of devoid of any structure of religion whatsoever, like, although I did have 
when I was 14, I decided I was going to be Catholic for a year. And I used to go to St. Thomas More Church on 89th Street. Stop. <laughs> I did. I did. And I've never told anyone that before, but my mother knows. And my What Jewish- did your mother think? She must have been horrified. <laughs> I mean, she had grown up Lutheran and Protestant and and had kind of had a funny relationship with Christianity. She had become Quaker. She had really gotten very into Quakerism. And then she married my father, who was Jewish. And then I decided when I was 14 that I was Catholic. And I, I went <laughs> every Sunday for one year. Quaker plus Jewish equals Catholic. Got it. Okay. Following. It made sense to me. But I think at the time, you're 14, right? So it's also, you're so permeable. And it was like being in this building, the beauty of the building and all of the ritual. And it was almost like having this context around this, the safety, this sanctity, as you're trying to figure out who you are and, and, you know, what parts of you are good and what parts of you are bad. And then that's what I was taken with too, the kind of the magic of, of it. And I think that's why reading back to what your grandmother like it just resonated with me so much, like the appeal of having that structure that within you can create this magic and, and meaning and kind of like imbue your life with meaning like that. But what was it about being 14, do you think, that like made you want magic so bad? Like what was going on? What was going through your mind? I think, you know, I was puberty probably. I was a late bloomer and I was really gawky and I had come to New York city from California and I was really behind and educationally speaking. And so it was taking me a while to catch up with my peers and everything just seemed just like there was not a lot of order. I didn't, you know, I felt very lost. I think I felt very lost when I was 14 and we had this wonderful lady that used to look after us from the Philippines and she was Catholic and I started going with her and then I just got really into it. Were you into any of the saints or anything or was there like a part of the ritual that you were attracted to? Well, I was always into St. Christopher and I still have St. Christopher medallions. Get out of here. Why St. Christopher? Well, just for protection and I think my life has been so, I've been so peripatetic all over the world, all, all the time. And, and having this idea, you know, that St. Christopher will will protect you in your travels. And I don't know, it's funny. Like some of it really stayed with me and the incense. Yes. The incense, which, you know, and it's funny too, because when you talk to shamans or, you know, people who, or indigenous cultures that use incense to connect, kind of clear the path of the soul to connect to God. It's like, there's so many of these amazing similarities and axioms really, you know, kind of like are run through all these different cultures and, and religions and ways of, of approach. And so like, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. God, that is so, thank you for sharing that. First of all, I feel honored. (laughs) And also I think it's so interesting. You touch on a lot of big things. The first is Catholicism's like real penchant for syncretism. Like just the idea that Catholicism has this open avenue for the mystery and for the magic as such an important part of its ceremony. And so Catholicism looks so different in different parts of the world. Look at, you know, Dia de los Muertos, right? Like that's Catholic. Right. But like Catholicism in Italy looks different than that. But like Catholicism in the Philippines can also take a different form. 
So just the openness that there was in Catholicism, whether it was strategic or not for conversion, et cetera, obviously <laughs> a, a key part of the conversation. But I think the openness to magic in, in different forms is so interesting. But also, you know, Catholicism reinforces this idea of autonomy and our, our ability as individuals to connect to spirit that I think is missing or is not as prevalent or as front and center in a lot of different versions of Christianity. And there was space for, for example, like a Teresa of Avila to say, Jesus came to me and this is what Jesus said. And so I need to start in order because this is what the Lord is calling me to do. Mm -hmm. And for the Vatican to be like, okay, I guess, you know what I mean? Like that is pretty revolutionary in some ways. And so it's just funny how much the Catholic church exists within paradox and has built its reputation off of paradox. I, I just interviewed an abortion doula who works for Catholics for choice, who, yes. who talked about, and I said to her, you know, Kate, why would you work why would you go to Catholic church or why would you even call yourself a Catholic knowing how the institution of the church is advocating against reproductive justice acts? If they're trying to block Biden and Pelosi from getting communion for defending a woman's right to do what she wants to with her body, despite the fact, by the way, that our whole religion is based off of a virgin woman choosing to give birth to the son of God, by the way. Anyways, and she said, I don't do this because it's a contradiction. This is what my Catholicism calls me to do. And wow. the church can't refute that. Because that is her right as a Catholic to say what she's called by God to do, you know? It's it's beautiful and revolutionary to reclaim your religion in that way and to be close enough to yourself and what you hear from God, right? And I mean, it's very brave, especially in the face of what's happening now in our culture. And this reminds me of something else you talked about, how you know, we're kind of lurching towards this more conservative, like oscillation, right? And you said something like that it can't be blamed on religion. This, yes. And and I really wanted to ask you more about that. Like, because <laughs> in my mind, that's, you know, the core cause of it from my perspective. From your vantage so, point. Yeah. So, so what are the other factors and how are they compounding yeah, one of my first like classes that I took this past semester, the one of the first texts we read, it was called Religion and Global Politics. Someone who used to work in the State Department taught it. And one of the first texts we read was was called The Myth of Religious Violence. Basically why you can't just call religion violent. You know, I think the best understanding of religion as I have it is that religion is a force that can often be caught up in systems of power. And mm -hmm. so it can often be used as a weapon in an arsenal for people in power to assert dominance. The, the trouble with saying that religion is the root cause of, for example, our slide towards conservatism is not every religion agrees with what is happening in America, right? For example, how many Jewish people do we, do we know who are shocked and horrified that white Christians are dominating the Supreme Court because those white Christians aren't representative of Jewish people in America, to say nothing of Muslim people in America, to say nothing of agnostic folks, Hindu folks, et cetera, right. et cetera. So then let's say, okay, Christianity is the cause of all evil. Well, actually, Black Christians didn't exactly vote for Donald Trump. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Most black people, in fact, didn't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, okay, so so which Christianity? It, it must be white Christianity then, 
well, not also not exactly true, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, even when you get down to it, most Catholics in America support reproductive justice access. Yes. So the question I think for me becomes, if religion is a factor, let's call it white supremacist Christianity, if that's a factor in this equation, in this power equation, what does it ultimately serve? Mm-hmm. Because sure, we could say, well, it serves the evangelical Christians right to God. It is not evangel- just evangelical Christians who were showing up with guns to drag queen story hour this yeah. week. It is not just white supremacist oh. Christians who were at the Capitol. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, the real enemy as we have to name it, comes down to white supremacy and the white supremacist patriarchy that that we are living in. And what I I find really frustrating is not the religious element of all of it, because I, I think to some extent, we need to talk more about religion to change the conversation about religion in the public square. My issue is how we are not all outraged by this in a way that encourages us to build coalitions with folks who are are not aligned in this same way. Mm-hmm. How are we not using this moment to take to the streets en masse and mm-hmm. change the trajectory that this country is going? How have we been so reduced to voting blocks and identities and neighborhoods or whatever else divides us that we can't see past the borders of our identities or the categories that we've been placed in to see that this fight is going to kill all of us, you know? And that's what really concerns me as we head into this moment, because I don't think people saw the immediate ramifications of reproductive justice as a fight against a person's right to do what they want with their own body. This doesn't stop at abortion. They're going to start monitoring our pregnancies. They're going to start collecting data on pregnant women. They are potentially going to recriminalize sodomy. They are potentially going to overturn marriage equality. You know, this is a real imposition on people's rights that is only benefiting if it even benefits is another question I have, because I don't think anyone benefits from white supremacy spiritually, but it is it is a way to keep people in power. And what I mean by that is cisgender, heterosexual, white men in power. And mm-hmm. I think that's something we should all be really alarmed by. I agree with you. You know, like politics aside, just to me, to be American means that you have freedom and that there is a separation of church and state and that the government cannot tell you what you can do, who you can marry, you know, what you can believe. And so it seems so fundamentally at odds to what the whole purpose of the country is, right? Yeah, I I get what you're saying. You know, I think what it comes, what it comes down to is that America has always been an internally diverse country for the most part. Right. And yet only certain people have risen to the top and the profile of the people who rise to the top in our country has existed as mainly the same. Mm -hmm. And so systems that we are all used to that I think are being called into question at the moment, which include political office, policing, Mm -hmm. healthcare, education, those institutions have upheld a society that has been built on faulty values. And, you know, I, I love what you said about to me, America means, right? Because this is, it gets to the beginning of our conversation. It's like a full circle moment because I said to me, Christianity means this, right? But right. is the truth is that America is as you see it and America is as Donald Trump sees it. Yeah. America exists in all of those capacities. It's just, are we really fighting for the America that we see? 
I think is the question because I know that the there is a certain contingent of Americans who are armed and who are dogged and devoted in how they show up to the polls and also will use force if necessary to prevent people like us from going to the polls. And so, and, and that's the moment that we have to really be wondering, are we willing to fight for this, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are, and they've shown they are time and time again. And that's what's scary about where this moment is, is headed. Yeah, it's almost like the acknowledgement that there are so many versions of America is almost the scariest part, but it might also be the solution ultimately, right? Facing that reckoning is is part is something that I will say with love because both of us are white people. It's something that white Americans are really loath to confront. Yeah. And we're not asked to confront it in a way that's to like self-flagellate. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? We have to move past the immobilization of white guilt and figure out how we move into action that best serves our community. And 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 I loved also what you said about secularism. You know, one of the big parts of my thesis is to challenge the notion of secularism in America because America was founded as a country under God. America was founded under Christian ideas. America was colonized under Christian ideas. And and so we have to kind of reckon with the roots of Christianity and Christian dominance here mm -hmm. if we're ever going to get anywhere, you know? And so the the in a way, you know, the abortion ruling has exposed that there's no such thing as an impartial judge on the Supreme Court, right? And their religious biases are on full display. We need to reckon with religious biases everywhere. Otherwise, what was the big deal about gay marriage? Like it, by the way, loving v. Virginia, right? Like interracial yeah. marriage was yeah. not even a century ago that it was legalized. The freedom of indigenous people to practice their ceremonial rights was yeah. not even a century ago, right? So what freedom of religion? Freedom of religion for who? We can't have a Muslim ban and say that we practice freedom of religion. That's absurd, right? That's so these things are... These things are all up for question, not in a way that I want to like lead us more into despondency and a lack of hope, but mm -hmm. like I want us to be asking the right questions in the hopes that we are changing what our communities look like, what our circles look like, and mm -hmm. then mobilizing, mobilizing accordingly. And just learning, you know, being open to being wrong, being open to hearing another point of view without, you know, having the maturity to not be so triggered if you hear a point of view that's incredibly different to your own, I, I do think that that's destructive too, because we, we get so calcified in our own mm. ways of thinking and it's the enemy of progression really. Yeah. The, the ability to just say, this is brand new information and I'm going to need a minute. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, exactly. I, think that's, I think that's okay. I was, that was basically me for the last year at Harvard. <laughs> I went in there wanting to like set fire to the Vatican and I was like, okay, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> like, let me, let me, let me think about this in a more complex way for a second. So how, how are you relating to Christianity now as a gay man in 2022? I have been given the gift of looking at queerness as a divine birthright. I have looked at my childhood and the experiences that I once felt really sorry for myself as, as mm -hmm. a moment of divine revelation, right? Sometimes the gifts we are given 
don't feel like gifts at the moment that we are given them. And it's only in retrospect or with the in willing t- willingness to like endure and see life through and make mistakes and burn the wrong bridges that like we're able to look back and say, I, I, I get what it was all about now, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, if it wasn't for my queerness, you know, I look at these certain traps of like patriarchal masculinity that I think my brothers have been a part of. Mm-hmm. And I look at all of those things for the most part that I was able to avoid. And I see that as such a grace of God, you know, mm-hmm. And I look at how I'm able to communicate with at least two of my brothers in a way where I can tell they respect me and I respect them. And mm-hmm. we come from, we might as well come from different planets, but we love each other and we're willing to listen and try and hash it out. I just was sitting as my older brother, Anthony, you know, was trying to figure out what the big deal about abortion access was. And my fiance, who's a emergency medicine physician, explained it to him And Anthony listened and said, thank you, you know, like Mm -hmm. growth that I couldn't have, I couldn't have even prayed for just happened right before my eyes. Right. If you're, if we're willing to, to lead with love. And I think I look at my relationship with my fiance, it's like the reason that I really started thinking that God was real is because I couldn't understand how I was being loved by someone so magnificent you know, and and being able to stand by this man as he has done incredible things that defy all odds and all real concepts of time and time zones, by the way. He works harder than anyone I know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how someone can love and not at least leave possibility for the spirit, for the soul, uh-huh. for God. And that gift of love is something that, you know, I, I try my hardest to carry with me every day. But I've begun to see that this was a gift and that this was meant to be. Mm. And I believe I was meant to be exactly who I am. And that's a theological assertion that I am willing to to stand by in my thesis. (laughs) So take that, Harvard. (laughs) Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I want to ask one question. This is not in relation to religion as much as the kind of beauty part of your career. Oh, okay. Because you... Were, didn't you work at Allure at, before yes. Vogue or Yes. When I was at Allure, I spearheaded the End of Anti-Aging Initiative. This is what I'm going to ask you about because okay. I, in my research, I didn't know that you had not only spearheaded it, but you sort of concepted this yes. anti-aging as being like not the way that we should frame. And I just- Self-care, yeah. Right. This has made its way into my product development meetings. Yes. Really? Yes, it has. It really has. And, you know, trying to ideate like, well, how do we reframe this? And what do we call a cream that essentially is kind of erasing or helping with signs of aging? Totally. And so, but first of all, thank you because. My gosh, my pleasure, please. And can you tell me a little bit about that light bulb that went off? And yes. Yeah. Yes. I worked in beauty ever since I was a teenager. I worked in hair salons. Then I worked for Frederick Mall as my first job in college. I opened his Madison Avenue store with him. He's a famous perfume publisher. And then I was a beauty intern at Teen Vogue. And my first jobs in magazines were to be the assistant beauty editor of Teen Vogue and then the senior beauty editor of Refinery29. I believe that beauty is such an important quest 
And beauty is something that we should all strive for, whether that is physical beauty or other forms of aesthetic pleasure. I think it is, again, part of our divine birthright. I studied, my, my major at NYU was called the philosophy of beauty. Beauty comes up so much in theology, you know, and it is such an important part of how we understand the world and see God's presence in the world. So anyways, all of those things aside, what I was troubled by when I was presented with this opportunity by Anna Wintour to be straddling digital editorial director duties for Teen Vogue and Allure, which meant that I, I had a staff of 50 at that time. And I was like 26, maybe. I basically was concerned. The thing that I worry about in some of our like self-care jargon is that we may be actually replicating the ills of like old school beauty marketing that we think we're trying to erase. Why should women be made to feel ashamed of their age when men are supposed to age like fine wine, for example? Right. Why are women supposed to mask their age, hide their age, do anything to look their age when your age is like actually your chops, your credits, like your gravitas, your credentials? And so I just felt like the beauty speak on anti-aging, you can't be anti-something that's inevitable. You know what I mean? It's like being anti-climate change. Oh, I wish, you know? Like, it's inevitable. It's just part of life. And so to give women options that at least make them feel like they have a choice in the matter and they're being respected in the matter, it just feels like the least that product marketers and people who are developing products can do, you know? Well, thank you. And, you know, none of our products are called anti-aging, and that's because of you. I am thrilled. That is so cool, <laughs> actually. True. I'm going to put that on my freaking resume. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what are your questions okay. for me? I'm turning the table on you because, I, you know, we were supposed to be talking more about pride. And so I, I, I compiled an LGBTQ quiz for you. Well, this will be the pride heavy section of our podcast. Okay, great. Okay, so I have a list of seven questions that okay. I'm going to ask you. And I just want you to do your best. Okay, oh my okay, God. Okay, okay. Okay, number one. Your friend Cameron Diaz recently appeared on RuPaul's Drag Race as a guest judge. Please name a current cast member who is competing this season. Can't do it. You don't watch Drag Race. I do not watch Drag Race. So you did not see Bosco impersonate Gwyneth Paltrow and like develop a goop product on the Drag Race stage. <laughs> no, I did not. But I, that's what YouTube is for. Because now I that's what YouTube is for. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, first of all, everyone should watch Jinx Monsoon impersonate Judy Garland on The Snatch Game if you have also not watched Drag Race. Okay, okay. I'm making notes. I'm making notes. Question number two. Who was the first Black trans woman to make the New York Times bestseller list? I know this because I interviewed her at an InGoop Health event, and it's Janet Mock. Yes! Our girl. I love Miss Janet. She's okay, number amazing. three. Okay. I'm about to stump you again, I think. Oh, boy. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, it's okay. Gwyneth Paltrow, you are famously an Academy Award winner, but you are also a member of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, correct? Correct. Okay, please name one LGBTQ character in the Marvel movies. Oh, my God. I haven't even seen the Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, I've like, I saw Iron Man. Are they in my Iron Man? I don't think so. No, sadly. They're in the crossover. I like didn't Avengers. See that. I, oh. didn't see I thought you were I in Avengers. I think I, I am yeah. in Avengers, but I did not, I have not seen the Avengers. 
Who is it? There's a lot. There's actually quite a few. There's more in the comics. Okay. I think the most known one would be Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie. Okay. Loki is also oh. another one. Deadpool. And then Brian Tyree Henry just played Fastos in Eternals. And he has like a gay husband, obviously a gay husband, and, and, and children in the movie, which is really beautiful. I've seen none of these movies, so I don't know. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I love that for you. Okay, number four. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gwyneth Paltrow, Academy Award winner, CEO Gwyneth Paltrow. Please name a trans-led organization that people should donate to this Pride season. Oh my gosh. My favorite one that I know because of you. Yes. What is it? It's called Trans Santa. Oh, yes. This is good. And you told me about them last Christmas and it's an Instagram account that you follow. Yes. And a trans, a young trans person will post a note and some things that they need. And it is so emotionally, I mean, I can't even, you know, I used to last Christmas, I told you this, I used to be in my bath, just filling the Amazon baskets of all of these trans kids. It is the most heartening, heartwarming. It's beautiful. I highly recommend trans Santa. You follow it on Instagram. And then spearheaded by ACLU's leader of trans justice, Chase Strangio, and the Pose actor, India Moore. And it's an incredible organization. Thank you for supporting them. That is amazing. Of course. Thank you for telling me about them. Okay, here's a wild card. If you get this one, I'm going to be so proud of you. Uh But I don't think you're going to get it. Okay. But let's see. Prove me wrong. Christina Aguilera recently headlined Los Angeles Pride. Name the movie that she famously starred in with Cher. (gasps) <gasps> wait, 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 wait. Yep. I know yep. this because, oh. Come on. I think it was the same year as Country Strong. And wait, is it, it's not burlesque, is it? Yes, it's burlesque. You got it. I, did, I really thought I was going to get you again. You got it. I can't believe you got that. Hot it one. won a Golden Globe. It won a Golden Globe. Yes, I'm telling you, I think it's because I think it was Country Strong was also nominated, I think, for a Golden Globe or something. And I remember thinking, oh, Burlesque is like the other musical this year. Yes, and they won for Best Original Song for Cher's Song. I'm pretty sure. Oh, my God. That is incredible. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's like also not, I mean, it's gay, but it's not gay. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, it still works. Okay. Uh, now we're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have two more questions and okay. then I'm filing an official complaint. But the two okay. questions are now historical. Number six, an uprising against police brutality famously kicked off the modern gay rights movement in America as we know it. What was the name of the bar? Stonewall. Where the uprising took place. Yes, Stonewall. Okay. That was right near my neighborhood in New York where I lived forever and ever. Oh my God. I'm sure the gays love seeing you on a Saturday night. (laughs) Okay, bonus question. There was a different uprising here in California that occurred three years earlier. Do you know the name of that one? Was it a Harvey Milk thing? It was called the Compton Cafeteria Riots. Oh. So it's like 
it's weirdly, you know, 69 Stonewall is looked at as kicking it off, but this happened three years before. Similar thing, response to police violence and harassment, targeting drag queens and gender nonconforming folks. This one is credited as being like the catalyst for trans activism in San Francisco. Oh, wow. And I love it because now there's the world's first ever transcultural historical district exists in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is incredible. And it's led by three incredible black transgender women. So it's it's the best. Okay. Finally, just in conclusion, okay, I would like to officially file a complaint on behalf of gay men who visit goop.com okay. for the coffee enema okay, out of commission for at least a week. <laughs> Things were not going well for me. So I just want you to know that. I've never told you. I'm going to put right a vibe. disclaimer on it. <laughs> yeah, we need like a good goop, like soothing water. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. getting that right in the product development. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad we got to have a little fun at the end. Me too. It was a heavy combo. Thanks, Gwyneth. This Thank is you so, so fun. You are so brilliant. You teach me all the time, and I'm just so grateful to be in your aura. Likewise, I am so glad I met you. You have helped to make LA feel a little bit more like a home for me. So I really am eternally indebted to you for that. So thank you. I love you. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Philip Cardi. Be sure to tune in to his podcast, Unholier Than Thou, and subscribe to his newsletter at religiouslyblonde.substack.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.